We're okay. recording. Great. Go. Friends, this is week four. Let's call it week four. Week four of our beginnings and endings class. And this week we are discussing uh, the kinds of questions that creation was written to answer or give uh, the kind of story the creation story is and the kind of story it isn't. So the way that we laid it out on Sunday was that creation was written to get at the questions of why and what. Why is there anything instead of nothing? And what is it all about? What's it all for? Um, and probably who as well. Who is this God and who are we? So why, what, and who were the questions that the Genesis authors were con uh, concerned with? And they actually assumed... They actually assumed the how based upon their own pre-scientific ancients understanding um, and were a bit ambiguous or uninterested in when. Uh, and the idea here that I want to discuss tonight is that we tend to have questions that are provoked or um, shaped by our perspectives, our worldviews, our sensibilities, our, our um, our frames, and we take those questions to the text to the text and demand answers from them. So one of the ways we've done that is we've we've taken the question of of the question of when did creation occur and how did it occur. These are questions that science is answering in various ways, and we uh, we demand that the text answer that question. And so there's been a lot of uh, work done to um, to get scripture to answer questions that were it wasn't intended to answer. So when when did the earth begin? Is a question that Genesis is not intending to or wanting to answer. And how did it all happen? Well, uh, the how is a, uh, written as poetry in response to other hows. Uh, and it was written from pre-scientific minds. So the how, uh, the how then is not going to answer all of our questions based upon science, right? And so I think the work that I tried to do on Sunday was to give us a different frame of what is revelation? How does God reveal himself? Right, and uh, I, I advocated that God doesn't reveal Himself in timeless, abstract truths or principles, but rather God reveals Himself in timely truths, uh, in embodied persons and places. This is the only way God can reveal Himself. Now, as you'll see, those of you who've been in our DNA groups who are getting our DNA groups, this carries over into our DNA groups. Yeah, like God meets us right where we're at and right in our lives. Um, this is most fully seen in Jesus, the incarnation of the word. The beginning was the word, right? And he lived among us, right? But uh, this principle of incarnation, or maybe we could say this paradigm or paragon that we see in the incarnation is also how God is always revealing himself. Yeah? Uh, and so I mentioned a lot of the ways that God had accommodated to understandings in Israel over the time. We know this because Jesus tells us this, <laughs> right? Um, he tells us that God accommodates to people. Uh, but we also, see, we also see sort of movements or concessions, even in the Old Testament, that God is making. I'm going to talk about another one this Sunday as we talk about the image of God and how God concedes to give Israel a king in 1 Samuel. Um, and often we hear, well, that's because God was already their king. Uh, but what we'll see in the Genesis story is that uh, there's another reason why this grieves God's heart. Because there's some creational theology about uh, who God's representatives on earth is. Um, so God accommodates his revelation to us, to our frames, which means uh, that we don't have to be scandalized or disappointed or mistrust our revelation because uh, the biblical authors uh, didn't understand uh, that the sun was at the center of the universe. 
right? God didn't see fit to teach them a heliocentric understanding of the solar system before he revealed himself. Yeah. And the ancient cosmology, and I threw pictures up uh, this on Sunday, the ancient cosmology that most ancient Near Eastern people had, and even Jews had, wasn't uh, scientifically correct, but God inside of that cosmology revealed himself. And so then I closed the message, the sermon, by just saying, um, if, God, if God seems less concerned about nailing down every scientific fact as he reveals himself, uh, then, then maybe we should, we should hold our questions loosely. Meaning, because we don't have an answer to every scientific question that modern science and the biblical narrative poses to us, uh, maybe we need to learn how to believe differently. And so um, there's this certain way of believing that seeks certitude, that it's, it tends to be a very rigid faith where if you pull one block, it's like Jenga. If you pull one block out of the rigid structure, the whole thing collapses, right? Uh, but if we actually see the kind of revelation we have instead of the kind of revelation we want, we see that God, God seems less concerned about answering every possible question that could emerge and more concerned about uh, giving us sufficient revelation to trust. So we want to be certain about ideas and God is seeking our worship and our trust of him which is a different telos, a different goal, a different reason for revelation to exist. All right, that's kind of a condensation summary. I know uh, some of you didn't get a chance to hear the message, uh, but that's a quick summary. Maybe I could have just said that on Sunday, saved us the other 27 minutes. Um, but tonight, I would love to hear kind of your, like the stirrings or questions, the ahas or uh-ohs or uh-uhs that you, uh, that are stirring in you because of this. Um, and then I'm particularly like if, if nobody has anything they want to share or after people get done sharing, I, I think I'd like to take just one sort of test case of how we need, like one of the questions this poses for us, that's a serious question that we need to wrestle with. A bit. All right. Do some wrestling, theological wrestling. So, uh, my neighbor likes to mow her grass at eight thirty when it's dark outside. So hopefully you can hear that lawnmower. Uh, her son mowed it today, and I think she's passive aggressively remowing it to fix it for him, um, which is great. Uh, but. I'm going to mute myself. I'd love to hear, like, what, what questions do you have? What, what things are stirring in you? What, does this create problems for you you didn't have? Or does this help problems that you did have? So let's have a conversation. Who wants to jump in? FYI, we can't hear the mower. So it, it's okay. It's just for my sanctification, then not for yours. I would love, can you guys hear me? Okay. I would love for you to expand on um, your definition of faith. Yeah. Um, well, the word faith is the same word as believe in the New Testament. And I'm going to try not to do too much deconstruction and ranting here, Alicia. Everybody be praying for me that I can just get to the, get to the point quickly. We have reduced belief to a cognitive assent or cognitive certainty. When I say, when I say like, um, I believe, it's a synonym for I think, isn't it? 
Now, belief involves thinking, but transcends thinking, okay? So it's not that thinking isn't a part of belief. It's that because we're enlightenment creatures, because we have more faith in our brains than we've ever had in the history of the world, and we want to control and manage all life through our cognitive functions, we've, we've reduced belief to thinking when it involves thinking, but it's so much more. So my definition of trust, I got there in 60 seconds. I'm really proud of myself. My definition of trust or uh, faith is trust, surrender, consent. Faith is consenting to the enabling and empowering presence of Jesus Christ in your life. We see multiple, yeah, gosh, I couldn't just stop there. We see multiple people in the Gospels who become paragons of faith who would fail a theology test. This is a clue for us. Jesus, this is why it blows the disciples' minds about, you know, uh, every example he holds up. Because they're surrendering, they're trusting, they're consenting to his lordship, and that's what he's after. That's what he's after. So when I say faith in Jesus, I mean consenting, surrendering to him, to his lordship. And I think that that is, especially in our culture, is a, is a corrective to this, these mental constructs that have to all be in line and be like this airtight thing. That's what I was attempting to differentiate it from on Sunday. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Great. What else? What else are you thinking? What else is turned for you? Matt, I think that was brilliant, actually. I believe that was brilliant. <laughs> I see what you did. Consenting to the enabling, empowering presence of Jesus in your life. I mean, if that doesn't take faith to consent, to allow Jesus to work in us and do whatever in us. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Is surrender trust. I mean, it's all of those things. That's just really, really powerful. Yes. I mean, another, succinctly right now. Yeah. Good. I'm glad Nancy to hear you say that a, a friend mm. of mine, a, a priest, I've heard this attributed to two other two people. And I don't know where it originates, but the thought is that in our culture, the opposite of faith is doubt. Mm. Right. So we, so we see doubt as an enemy. Mm. And like, if you're losing your faith, it means you have questions you can't answer. Mm. Um, but in scripture, doubt is a part of it. Okay. So doubt isn't completely wrong. Again, thinking isn't wrong, but yeah. the opposite of faith isn't doubt as much as it, as it is self willfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm a controlling self. Yeah. Right. Right. Because um, the biblical, the biblical is Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Lord, I have faith, help my lack of faith. You know, I mean, it's, so yeah. you're right. It's not the opposite. It's the, uh, that the opposite would be that I'm going to do it by myself. Yeah. I'm going to figure it out myself. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's good. It's good. Well, while I'm unmuted, I just want to say that I, I really appreciated your point on um, the accommodations um, to contextual knowledge that God gives to us. I mean, it was kind of this light bulb, this aha thing, because having just come from Africa, and I would, you know, I was teaching on worship, and I would ask, okay, so how do we, how does God reveal himself to us? And one of the first things, so I was three different groups. And the first thing that was said was dreams and visions. Yeah. You know, not, not the Bible, yeah. <laughs> not the Holy Spirit. It was dreams and visions. And I've heard this from friends that have been in Muslim contexts, Buddhist contexts, even in Japan, dreams and visions. And so I just, it was just this like, well, that makes so much sense in cultures where either uh, it's 
illegal or dangerous at best to evangelize classic evangelism as we think of it in our Western culture, that Jesus is going to still reveal himself. Um, and it's going to be in ways that our Western mind goes, maybe not. <laughs> um, and, and, and puts cautions on. So I just thought that that made so much sense. Um, and then, and then oral cultures, the same, the same way that story, the Bible is so much story and it was, it was given to an, an oral culture. And now here we are, how many uh, thousands of years later, we're back to um, oral cultures. I'm not back to, but we're, we still are reaching out to oral cultures. So anyway, yeah. I just, that was this like, yeah, it made so much sense moment. So mm. like, yeah. That's great. And it, it's uh, so there's sort of a Western privilege perspective too. Like, it, like honestly, I, I noticed this at work in me. Uh, somebody, somebody uh, I, I admitted, this is completely different, but, uh, but it's, there's an analogy here, maybe just for me. I admitted today on social media that I'm a racist and uh, some people can't believe it. Uh, and they, somebody asked me, how do you know you're a racist? And one of the ways I'm going to respond probably around 11 PM when I get done with everything I have to do today is what you it provokes what you just mentioned. So when I hear you talk about the dreams and visions that like people from the, uh, the global South or the middle East get, I think, Oh, bless their heart. Look at God just helping those pre-modern people understand. And someday, someday when, uh, you know, they get the internet, then <laughs> And the, and the industrial revolution, then God can reveal it, himself to them in discursive didactic thoughts. Yeah. Because the, that's the pinnacle of revolation. Mm -hmm. Like now there's only like 3% of me that feels like that, but mm -hmm. that lives in me, right? There's this privileging of, yeah. because when yeah. I hear visions and dreams, and probably 30% of me goes, Oh, but then, you know, anything yeah. can happen in a vision and dream. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus can show up as a three toed uh, unicorn fairy. And then, you, you know, and, but that's, that's completely my Western modern yeah. bias. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And just noticing that I can go like, I just have to reckon with that's my lens. Yeah. But, but here's my aha moment. As you say that God is accommodating to both of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I don't get many dreams and visions. Uh, Deb Sternke gets some dreams and visions. Um, maybe some of you guys do. I don't. And I actually sometimes wish and wish I would, but um, God's accommodating to me when he reveals himself to me through yeah. study and study and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for it's, sharing that. Nancy. You're right. Yeah, it's true. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Great stuff. Who's got other uh, thoughts or questions or things that are stern for you? I think this probably could be connected. Hey, to what uh, Nancy was saying, at least I'm going to connect it. Um, I was really thinking on Sunday, I really appreciated when you share that gif of like our cosmology. Well, I mean, one picture of what our cosmology might be right now, you know, cause like a hundred years from now, like you said, it could be, really something we look down at, but um, I was just reflecting on how, and I, sh I was sharing this with Mike, like I'm thankful to have spaces in my life of people who have really embraced science and have been people of faith because they just created that space for recognizing the beauty of God in science or in yes. things that we recognize through science or see in science. And I just, when you showed that, that's just what I kept thinking about is for one person that is such a, threat to them and to their yes. faith. Um, but because I've been able to have the privilege of having these spaces of people who've been such people of faith and, and really embrace science, um, then I was able to reflect on that as a place of, of something of beauty, like something that enlarges our vision of who God is rather than threatens our, our vision of who God is. And I think that's kind of um, connected to what Nancy was saying, as she was saying that I was reflecting on this. Um, just her experience in other cultures, it's like enlarges our vision of God. When we talk about God revealing through dreams and visions for a lot of us, that's maybe something that we would draw back from. But for those, 
as we begin to be open to it and recognize it, then it, it enlarges our vision of God rather than threatening us. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. I see that too. I think uh, one person looks at an expanding universe, right? Um, that's getting faster and faster leaving us. That looks to be what? 13.8 billion years old. Um, and they look at sort of the uh, incredible uh, beauty and symmetry and majesty of how it all works and they worship and another person breaks out in sweats and they can't worship because of it. Yeah. This is one of the reasons we're talking about this, Andrea. Um, I, I mentioned this before and I, I just want to say it again that like we're, we're not going to, there's no like big, here's what you have to believe about, origins and beginnings in terms of how and when it happened. I think it's possible. The, the big reveal here, I didn't, maybe, maybe you can say it now, not reveal, but sort of the, the implications of what I said on Sunday is you can be a seventh day literal creation person that the earth is 6,000 years old and live a faithful life with Jesus. And if that works for you and you're at the table, God bless you. The only time it'll ever become a problem is if you start demanding everybody else believe that too. And you could be a uh, day-age gap theory person, right? That it happened over lots and lots of years, uh, but it happened just like it says in Genesis 1 and reject evolution. And you can live a faithful life full of the fruit of the Spirit. And the only time it'll become a problem is if you start demanding that those backward seven day creationist people get on board. Um, and you can be an evolution person, right? You can believe that uh, the origins, the scientific origins as laid out in scientific evolution are generally broadly true. And again, like you can live a faithful life. Um, because the, the implication of God accommodating is like you're, uh, what you need for a virtuous kingdom life is given to us here, right? And is revealed through Jesus. And Jesus doesn't talk about in 1900 years, you're going to be confronted with the demonic teaching of evolution. And here's how you're going to answer it. Like it just doesn't happen like that. So, Right. Like, I probably need to just say that explicitly, yeah? What's that? Yeah. Um, that was one of the implications. And, Andrew, I think what you're saying is, like, for one person, they, they see evolution as, like, this is the only way I can become a Christian, stay a Christian. I'm so glad I can understand these things by theist, theistic evolution. And another person's like, well, then you might as well just throw out the whole Bible. No, this makes sense. God must be dead. That's real stuff. I mean, it's, it's really where people are at. Other thoughts, other questions, other things stirring? Can you guys hear me? Is that a yes, yes. or a no? Yes, yes, I can. We can hear you. Okay, our internet is kind of bad. So if for some reason you can't hear me, please just say. <laughs> um, I think for me, the thing that I'm noticing, like I'm having a pretty big Kairos is that I feel like last year I did a lot of deconstruction in DNA group about figuring out how like my love of organization or cleanliness in my home is tied to how I see God and I felt like I was doing good work of like breaking that down and then once this series started it was all about how God is a God of order 
in the chaos mm. and like compartmentalizes things. And it just really bothered me because <laughs> yeah. I was, I've just been like, no, I want my God to be in chaos and for chaos to be okay. Um, and for it to not have to be ordered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, these are not science questions. These are not, you know, what do I think of creation? I mean, I guess it's tied to creation, but I'm just wanting to explain that for me personally, um, it goes down into like the literal mundane thing of my life, which is like the daily chaos of my life. And yeah. hearing that God is order actually hasn't been setting well with me. Yeah. So, because yeah, I don't, uh, yeah. So anyway, you were asking about, you know, what kind of stuff does it bring up? And it brings up some like, ugh, stuff. Thank you for sharing that. That's really important. It's really good. Really good, Josie. Thank you. Um, it, it makes you feel ugh or it doesn't feel like good news because, because it seems to um, invalidate where you're at. Is that, is that what I am inferring from what you're saying? Yes. Yes, I would say so. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and validates where you're at. And it's taken you a lot of work to get to a place where you can feel good about where you're at. And now you're hearing this as a invalidation of the hard work you've done for that goodness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Really no, I mean, it's great you shared that with us. Um, I think there's, I've heard from other people offline that the opposite, this, this series is having the opposite work on them. They had everything ordered, everything lined up. And all this, every week, it's like, I'm taking, a, I'm taking uh, their room that's fully like put away and nice. And I'm like throwing things on the floor. So like, it's interesting that like, this is like putting the almost like this straight jacket of order onto like this freeing disorder that you're experiencing. But other people have this order and it feels like I keep coming and sh like messing up their hair after they fixed it, you know? And it's just interesting how, how people again, experience the same content in two different ways. Yeah. It's good. Sure. Good. I mean, I think, I think maybe the, maybe from, I don't, maybe from me, I don't know if this would be helpful for you to hear, Josie, but from me, I think that uh, disorder, disorientation is, I don't know of one story of spiritual growth and maturity that doesn't have at least a half dozen seasons of what you're talking about. So just so you know, our, my intention, Ben's intention, isn't to communicate how you're experiencing it. Yeah, no, that, that's good. And I should clarify too that as it's, as I've noticed, I guess, um, kind of my repulsiveness to it. It's also, <laughs> I think, been, <laughs> I think it's also just been more like, oh, um, God, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, you're obviously doing something here in me because I've like completely de deconstruction this and now you're like bringing something else to me. Like there's more work you have, you want to do. <laughs> I am so glad that DNA groups are starting this week. 
I know. And I am too. I'm like, I was like, oh my gosh, I need DNA group right now. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it hasn't, I, okay. It, it's like, it hasn't given me necessarily bad news. I, mm. I want to make sure I communicate that. I yeah. feel like it's, I've been able to view it in the lens of, I think God is like trying to speak something in me because I'm noticing something right now. Mm. And I don't know what that is. And I'm happy to discern that with the rest of you guys, like yeah. as we go through this series. But I know for me, like the good news of order um, can be hard for me to swallow with my American mentality. So. Can you say more about that? What, what do you mean by that? Uh, American um, mentality. What, what is it about what you're describing as American mentality that makes it difficult? Americans are just very like systematic and like things to be ordered. And like, I think of manufacturing, like it's all about making money and you have to have like everything together. Also this fell into while I'm taking six Sigma training, which is all about finding efficiencies and order. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, no, <laughs> no, not okay. Yes. Um, but I think other cultures, don't need to have like this kind of structured home or structured work day, you know, just where like every single thing mm. is ordered and we're using, we're using it so efficiently or, you know, so it depends on the culture, of course, but I think Americans are just very much like that. And when we hear order, like ordering our chaos, Sometimes we look at it through that lens. Um, mm -hmm. At least I know I do. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, now I'm getting into my own personal rant, so I'll stop. But Hey, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It's good. Josie, it really is good that you're sharing this with us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say in general, like disorientation and disorder is a holy disturbance. Um, so I just, I, I resist the urge to solve it or fix it. And uh, we just want to stand in solidarity in the midst of it with you and bear witness to what Christ is doing. And that's hard to do on this call, but it's easy to do in DNA group. So thanks for bringing that to us. Yeah. Anybody else want to get in? I got a couple of things, couple of things I want to share, could share, but I don't want to close off uh, other people just bringing stuff to us if they want to share that as well. Um, I'm going to say something. So, uh, I think that might go into something that hit me on Sunday was the way that you were explaining, um, have, sorry, I'm bringing up faith because I'm a six, um, <laughs> but having faith in your faith in your faith was like really eye opening for me and, um, having faith in like your thoughts versus faith in a person. Um, and I don't know what I was, I'm just going to say that really hit me hard. Like it was it brought up a lot of how I felt like I was raised to believe. And so yes. it was uh, really good. Yeah. Just really helpful for sure to think about that. That's really good to hear. Yeah. That names my, that names my pitfall too, Alicia. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. yeah. And then I just want to say, amen, Josie. <laughs> I hate order. <laughs> <laughs> That's my uh, counterphobic side. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do. So I, I always feel very, um, I really appreciate you saying that because I always feel um, kind of like a black sheep in a lot of like friend groups and, you know, things like that where you're like, wow, I do things so differently and I don't think I should be feeling guilty for this, but it's hard to relate with people, which is what I always want to do. <laughs> so um, I just appreciate you saying that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Yeah. I'm going to actually talk a little bit this Sunday about how our imaging of God um, can, uh, has room for the ordering and arranging, but also for the creating and life flourishing. And how we actually see this, we see both of those, um, we actually see both of those impulses or dynamics in actually, so that I'm going to nerd out for just a second here. Uh, we actually see both of those impulses, this increasing complexity and order and this increasing chaos and entropy. We see both of those forces at work in the process of evolution. And it blows my stinking mind. It blows my mind. It's like there's this uh, order and arrangement, and I would say love, drawing creation into the future through natural processes. And at the same time, there's this uh, chaos, like chaos theory. Like there's this chaotic uh, uh, entropy, like uh, things falling apart happening at the same time uh, in, in biological processes that mirrors what we see in the creation story and names the tension that you just named, Alicia. I think. You can think of it as a, as a matrix. Mm. This, is, this is part of, uh, part of the way that I nerd out. Is, no, uh, no, no, no. False dichotomies. But essentially, like, you can think of it as... And I think there may be some good news here for uh, like about order that maybe our, our imagination about what order is has been dominated by, you know, American efficiencies and, you know, all, the, all that kind of stuff. And there's never any room for play or creativity. That's kind of what I hear you guys saying. Um, but I, I see in the biblical narrative about like the task that humans are given. Um, there's an allowing uh, for things to be what they are. And there's also a shaping that I think like there's both of those things that we need to bring. If we only allow and we never shape, we're just, we're sort of abdicating our responsibilities. We're assuming, oh, creation will be fine by itself. And clearly it won't. Like God told us like, no, I want you to cultivate this garden. I want it to grow throughout the whole world. I want goodness to thrive and flourish. Um, but if you only shape and you don't, you don't allow things to be what they are, there's kind of this domination um, that I think has probably resulted in, you know, just the exploitation of the earth. Like we're using up resources and we just like, there's no consideration for like, what is this land or, you know, how does, how does the land sort of want to be here? And how do we take that into consideration as we shape it? So the allowing and the shaping, I think makes for cultivation. Um, if we can do those things together rather than, uh, only doing one without the other. So. So anyway, that's part of how I nerd out about these things. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I have a fair amount of confidence in without with resisting the urge to be certain or to have faith in getting back to what I said about that last Sunday, Alicia, is that in, in broad contours, this theory of evolution thing is pretty much true. And so I just want, I want to share a little bit about some of the questions that creates, I think for us. Right. Um, I think I think we have an Adam and Eve question with the theory of evolution. Uh, there are there are um, certain certain people who consider themselves uh, theistic evolutionists. Um, a, a evangelical kind of famous pastor named Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian in New York City, he holds to this view. As far as I know. 
And that is that uh, evolution is true, but there was a historical Adam and Eve that historically had a fall that introduced sin into the world. Now, this could be true, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this. This could be true. I think there's a couple issues with that. The first is um, death seems to have existed. Physical death seems to have existed a long, long time. Like, it, the laws of physics would have to change in order for death to not exist and then exist. Because death is a part of life. So, you and I are made up of molecules of a star that died. That's a, that's a for instance. <laughs> so, so, how do things grow and live if there isn't hydrogen and other atoms being released when things die. So that's what I mean by the laws of physics would have to change. And it's also tricky to trace like wh where did this couple live and when and how did they achieve hominid status from whatever status they had before. Now, it all could happen. Frankly, uh, thinking of two people Historical Adam and Eve is less of a problem for me than thinking that death did not exist before this historical Adam and Eve. Um, I, think, uh, I think death is a different kind of uh, metaphor in Genesis. Uh, so there's ways to understand that. But uh, there's people like that who think of uh, theistic evolution. Um, I, I don't know what to do with the historical Adam and Eve question, just personally. Um, The options are, they are historical, and we got to figure out, you know, we have to sort of, it would be nice if science could verify that for us, because we look kind of silly, because it doesn't. <laughs> like, science basically says that, you know, Homo sapiens, it kind of emerged from a group of about 15,000 people in Africa, like, between 70 and 110,000 years ago. I think that's it. I could be wrong on those dates. Um, so, so that, that's one option. The other option is, uh, and, and here's the here's the real issue, is that you know Genesis one is written as like a poem. So it's not it's not written as like a like here's what happened history. It's written as a poem, and so we 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 expect poems to tell us different kinds of truths than we do court reporting, right? There are different genres. So if a court reporter writes a poem, they're a really bad court reporter. You know what I mean? And if somebody takes a court reporting and turns it in and, and reads it at a poetry slam, they're a really bad poet. We know this. And so uh, they, they're trying to communicate truth in different ways. So I'm okay with uh, Adam and Eve being a literary archetypes in Genesis. Right? So that, so that means then like, the, uh, the fall in the garden didn't just happen, but it's what always happens. That's what archetypal means. Does that make sense? So it's truth is not in that it happened in 6,000 BC at 3.42 PM, you know, on January 7th. It's truth is in that this tells the truth about humans archetypally. The issue is that like Jesus and Paul both talk about Adam as though he really existed and lived. Right? That creates a little bit of issue because it seems like, unless we want to change our hermeneutic to fit our theology, which friends, we don't want to do. <laughs> we don't want to have a theology and then try to like slip passages into it. But we want to say, okay, how would I read this if I wasn't having to defend anything? If I wasn't trying to prove anything. And, and sort of the, the natural reading would be, I think Paul and Jesus seem to have believed that Adam was a real person. Now, a few questions about that. And then I'd love to hear, I mean, I don't know if this is a problem for anybody else. This is one of the things I think about, especially when I have to preach through Genesis at my church. Um, 
a couple issues that creates for us. One, um, oh shoot, I lost the first one because I made that not funny joke. Okay, the second one, I'll come back to the first one. The second one is, is that okay if God is always accommodating to people's frames of references and Paul and Jesus happened to believe that they historically existed and didn't, and God didn't see fit, you know, but there wasn't, it didn't see fit to like fix that. Right. So the accommodation stuff that we talked about, is it, is it okay for us to just say, well, God accommodated to Paul's understanding of, of who really existed and didn't. Um, the second I remember the second thing, or the first thing. Second question I have is, um, I just wonder. I just wonder how. Uh, I just wonder how ancient people thought about history, and if they thought about it the same way we did. So when ancient biographies were written great liberty and license was taken with the details because what was important was to communicate the meaning of the subject you were writing on, not like actual facts and details from history. Right? So when somebody would write a, an ancient biography or an, even an ancient history, they would try to communicate the meaning of the history through story rather than like we want today, rather than all the details in order, sequentially, linearly, et cetera. So uh, when I say, did Paul and Jesus think of Adam as a historical person that actually lived? That question, that, that might be the wrong question to ask if I'm trying to inhabit how Jesus and Paul thought about history. That's the other thing that I don't know the answer to, right? So accommodation and the question of history. Now I could pull out these texts and we could talk about them for hours, but I'm one, I'd love to have conversation about that. If you have thoughts or questions, if you thought about this, if I've uh, maybe, maybe Josie's feeling so much better because I've just created more disorientation for her. Uh, and now she feels like she's way more comfortable. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, just, I'd love to hear thoughts about that if you thought about that if that's been a problem for you how you think about that we can have a short discussion about that i'll just say that um that's been something that has been sort of recently illuminating for me uh, to see is um, just that the concern about like historical accuracy that we have today was just not present in the ancient mind. Um, and that was, that was super, it's super interesting to me. And also like, I find it like, it's one of those things that's difficult for me to try to inhabit like a world where if I'm writing a history, I just, I, I throw some things that I saw, some things that somebody told me, this story, this thing that almost everybody believes didn't happen, but it's important for the point of the history. And so I'll throw that in and I'll just throw a bunch of stuff in there to kind of like write a history. Like it's hard for me to inhabit that mindset. Um, but it, it, you know, it allows me, I guess, to, to think that, you know, Jesus may have thought of, right. He may have not even had that as a question in his mind about like, do I think these were literal people that lived that may have not been nearly as an important of a question as, as it is for us today to figure out where back then they were like, well, the story functions the same way, whether or not they were, you know, <laughs> real or not, um, or, or historically, you know, sort of, uh, real. And so, you know, what's the difference? Um, so anyway, so it's just been an interesting exercise for me, I guess, to try to inhabit, that mindset because um, it feels very alien to not be concerned about that.
Все. Yeah, can I say something? Um, I, from, like, as I'm thinking about this, um, I'm, I'm thinking to, to imagine Paul didn't have the same kind of understanding that we have today, and, and that's one thing. But then when we start talking about Jesus, um, one who we ascribe divinity to, and how, how, can, how can he be both human and divine? Uh, it's something that I have wrestled with in my own personal Christology, but even more, it's like, I know that that's the place where a lot of people I know and love, that's, how, if Jesus is God, how can we say that, well, Jesus didn't know that there was a literal Adam. But when I start thinking about like what you just described, Ben, that, or, or even what you brought up, Matt, did, did, is that the way that in their time they, that history was even thought of? Was it important that this is an actual historical figure, this Adam and this Eve, or these are the stories that are a part of our, that are part of who we are as a people. And so that's, those are the stories we continue to tell. I don't know. It's just, it, it's a lot to, it's a lot to think through. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, uh, that to me was like a leap as well to go to like, oh, well, I can say that Paul didn't know, but did Jesus not know? <laughs> like, were there things that Jesus didn't know? Yeah. Um, but, but I, I come back to the incarnation there where Again, there, there was. <laughs> right Jesus, there were things he didn't Jesus know tells us he right and and for me i come back to the incarnation where i think a lot of people's vision of jesus is all divinity and no humanity yes. well how is it how is it incarnational if god came as a human but he was like not a human he was so divine he knew everything he walked around with omniscience floating around shooting bread out of his palms like yeah, spider-man that's not human enough and therefore not incarnational enough like we need Jesus to be a human, a real human who had to go to the bathroom and who didn't know things, right? Like who is tempted in every way, just as we are. Like I have a hard time believing he could have been tempted if he knew everything. So anyway. Um, I just had a question about this thought of historicity. The genealogies were so important all the way through the Bible. I mean, the Old Testament, New Testament, they're always going back to, you know, the father and the son and the, you know, all of the genealogies. So if they, if they weren't real people, if they were just stories, why would we keep going back, back to the same people? And that it was so important that Jesus came from this genealogy. Yes. And, you know, so, I mean, I just, I'm just saying that's a big question mark. Totally, Nancy. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't have the book of First Chronicles yeah. without genealogies. Whenever I get, whenever I get a hankering for good genealogy. Yeah, there you go. I love that. Numbers, I put myself face yeah, down in the, yeah. <laughs> in the first seven chapters of First Chronicles. <laughs> no, it's a good bedtime sleep. reading. Yeah. yeah. Anytime I can't sleep. Pull yeah, off. That's right. No, yeah, I think, Nancy, I think you're right. I think, um, I think we can talk about different genres of literature mm -hmm. are attempting to do different kinds of things, right? So chron chronologies are, are a specific genre of literature. They function by their own rules and laws. Yeah. Um, and then poetry and prose and like didactic teaching and narrative, like they all have different, you know, rules that they, they function right. by. And so I think, I think you're right. Uh, no, I think, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, like chron that chronology. That it's a question mark, right? <laughs> no, I, I think it's a great question. Yeah. And I don't know how, it, I don't know how it fits together. I don't know. You know, the other thing is I've never heard Genesis called poetry. I mean, I, I just have never heard that. So okay. I mean, when you look at Psalms, I can see poetry. Yes. I've never, ever, I've never I mean, I'm, I need to go back and read it with the eyes of poetry, I think. Um, yeah. I've never yeah, well, especially Genesis 1, there's this rhythm and cadence right. and That's true. repetition, That's true. Mm -hmm. you know, and um, 
And I think, I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it pure poetry. Uh, I think I've heard, I don't know if it was Brueggemann or someone else called it poetry prose. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely not. Um, History. Yeah. It's not it's the book of Ruth, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the book of Ruth. No, it's, it's not the book of Ruth, right. And so, yeah, and so there is a different... So was Ruth a real person? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was jo- yeah, was Jonah? Like, these are good questions. I mean, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, they're good questions, right? Like, uh, yeah. I think that... Um, I think my overall point in this is... I think we have real work to do to suss out like Christian theology in light of what science is revealing to us. And I don't want to downplay those questions and say they're unimportant. I think they are important. And I think they have implications for how we interpret things. But I also want to practice and teach in a body of faith that's flexible enough that if we find out that Jonah was a parable if Job was a, like a drama written to help Israel wrestle with their, like a theodicy and how you deal with the problem of evil. And if Jonah was written as a prophetic critique against the anti-missional impulse of Israel and how they'd rather die than see Gentiles repent. Like I want to have a faith flexible enough that, that I won't, I won't have to throw out the whole Bible because that's true. You know what I'm saying? Like my trust in like the truthfulness and usefulness of scripture isn't based upon those things. It's based upon Jesus. So I'm not even saying I believe those things about Jonah and Job. And I'm not saying that, again, and I'm not saying that like Adam and Eve aren't real people, but I'm saying like, I don't want to be caught flat footed and throw Galileo in prison. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not the kind of faith that I want to practice and pass on to my kids. So it's always good to have these conversations ahead of time rather than just put up the ramparts and get in the bunker and close our eyes and stuff our ears. That's right. Um, Yeah, that's a great, Great questions about chronology and yeah, and all that. Yeah, and I would I would just add to that like those are the questions yeah. that like I think the fun like the uh, there's there's a there's an instinct in us that's like that 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 those questions mean I shouldn't explore this any further, right? It's like oh well that would like I guess we can't explore that further, but I like I think the instinct we're trying to cultivate is an instinct that instead says oh, I wonder what these genealogies are for then. How did ancient people read them? You know, what, like, what work are they doing? You know, and how, and how can we, you know, discover more about that? That's the instinct, I think, that allows us to sort of faithfully ask questions, you know, and say, oh, I, well, if this is true, then what about the genealogies? Great question. Like, and then to answer, ask, like, well, what about them? What work are they doing in these texts? Why are they here, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, those are great questions, Nancy. I like your questions. You always, you always find like the whatabouts every call, which is great. It's fantastic. I love that. And I just wanted to maybe throw something in there that may or may not be helpful, hopefully more helpful than not. Um, I think as we were talking about like the historical Adam and Eve, and are they or are they not? It's kind of important to mention that there's also kind of a crisis in historical studies, whether that's like just general history or historical studies within biblical studies, because in the same way that postmodernism raises questions about like the modern scientific endeavor, it raises questions about the his, the the endeavor to reconstruct history because all history is a story being told from a perspective and there isn't like an objective history in the same way that there's not a purely objective scientific methodology. And I think that's been, I, I kind of feel like you, Matt, where I'm like, I don't really know because of like how Jesus viewed it. And because there's just, it's a really small amount of scripture that even talks about Adam and Eve. I don't really know how to 
lay all that out there, but um, I think maybe for me a helpful analogy has been thinking about the flood narratives and how you have like the biblical flood narrative and then you have, you know, flood narratives within the ancient Near East. But then on top of that, there's also archaeology that kind of shows, hey, there probably was some kind of like floodish thing that happened in the ancient Near East. And maybe like for us, we wouldn't say it was the entire globe. Like you don't see those same signs of archaeological research that you see within the ancient Near East. But then it makes me ask the question, okay, now we have all of these narratives from these different cultures in the same place trying to explain this event that seemed to have happened for these people, but they're all explaining it from their place. And so whereas we want to ask like, we want to reconstruct an objective history, which actually doesn't exist, but uh, we know that we could tell a story about something and that the story we're telling is going to come out of our context and use our language and use, you know, our ways of thinking about the world. And maybe it's more fair to think about like the biblical writers talking about Adam and Eve um, out of their context and, and like what questions they're asking and what they're speaking against, what polemical kind of things they're speaking against. Um, and that kind of helps um, maybe shed light on it more so than trying to determine with the text whether or not they were historical. That's a good word, Andrea. Thanks, Andrea. Matt, you're, uh, you're muted. You seem like you're trying to talk. Oh, I was trying to talk. I just was saying Andrea's teaching the class next week. And I, I said, I hope she's okay with that. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and then, oh, I forgot I was going to say with the genealogy thing. Um, I think, <laughs> thanks, Matt. Thanks for the encouragement. Well, I was thinking about how, like, in reading that I've done about genealogy, how people have really, because we don't use genealogy in our culture. So it's really hard for us to connect. Well, it's hard for me. I mean, I'm guessing it's hard. It's, I know it's hard for a lot of people from what they say to connect to those parts of scripture. But genealogy is also very contextual and genealogy is doing something and genealogy is telling a story. And, you know, there are people who do historical studies within biblical studies who don't think there ever were 12 tribes. You know, they think, you know, there may have been like, this one group of people and then all, and it's within anthropology, they talk about this, right? Like how you draw people into your family, kind of like, it's like an adoptionary type of a drawing. And, and but then they're identified, what's it called? F fictive, thank you, Mike. <laughs> Mike is sort of listening to me. Fictive kinship, right? So they're not blood related to you, but it's kind of like Rahab. Then they get drawn into your family and then like, she's a Jew then in a way. I mean, she's a Gentile, but she's an Israelite at that point when she gets drawn into the clan. And so even with genealogy, you get, um, Who's the guy? Is it Zerubbabel, Mike? The priest who like comes out of nowhere in Chronicles, but he's like so important. And then he becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus. So I don't really do a lot of genealogical studies. I think there are people out there who could like really speak profound good news through those things. I think that's probably like a gift of the spirit or something, but, um, but I think even that, like it's telling a story and we like, it's good to think about how were the ancient people using that to tell that story maybe more than like did was so-and-so really the son of so-and-so because I mean we don't have any way to access that information anyway yeah yeah that's good okay I think I'm done that's great hey don't wait till 905 next time get right in there with all that because I, I got I've got like 30 minutes of conversation <laughs> with you I want to have but we're we're bumping up against the end of the time that was really good also uh thank you Mike for uh, your contribution. Um, uh, yeah, friends, um, the goal here is to create a culture where we can have these conversations. Because our faith is in Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, we can have these conversations. Right? Um, I think about this. I mean, I mentioned this before. I think about the seismic shift it was, and half of Acts is written about this, by the way. The seismic shift it was to include Gentiles into the church. And how that could have ripped the church apart. In fact, half of Paul's letters are written because of issues around this, too. 
so it didn't, it wasn't just like a Jerusalem decision and everybody was hunky dory. Like it was, it was hard. Uh, but if, if Jews could learn to read the old Testament, their first Testament in a way that was good news for Gentiles, we can figure out what to do with Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's, this is a, this is a small task in comparison to that. I want to suggest. And even like, you know, the church wrestling with what to do with slavery and having to reread texts about slavery. This is also small in comparison to that. So I just want to put this, if this is creating consternation or trouble for you, uh, unless you really enjoy it, uh, and then I don't want to take it away from you, let the listener understand. Josie. Uh, uh, unless you really enjoy this, I'm not trying to create this for you, but like that maybe, maybe we'll calm it down a bit. Like what's writing on this isn't, in comparison to slavery and Gentile inclusion in the church, this is a smaller thing. Let me end with just a few recommendations for stuff if you want to read more about this stuff. Uh, this book called The Language of God by a scientist named Francis Collins. It's a really good book. This guy helped map the uh, genome. He's a Roman Catholic. He, and he talks about just how science has uh, helped his faith. He talks about evolution, et cetera, et cetera. It's super great. Then there's a good old Anglican named John Polkinghorn. He's written a number of books. He, he's a quantum physicist that became an Anglican priest. And then he became the, let me get this right, president of Queens College, Cambridge. This guy's a fathead. So um, Science and Religion, The Quest of Truth. He's written some really good books on that. John Polkinghorn, if you want to look that up. Uh, and then I just got this book in the mail. I'm not even sure if it's any good, but it's Signpost to God by Peter Busey. How Modern Physics and Astronomy Point the Way to Belief. So there's resources out there, friends, as you're wrestling with this, if you want. You know, with all the leisure time we all have, we can just pick up six or seven books, you know, while we're rehabbing our house. No problem. Right? Yeah. Uh, hey, I love you guys. I love being a part of this community. I love that uh, that we can meet like this virtually and there can be kids in diapers and uh, all, all kinds of things happening around us and it's just fine. It's beautiful. So uh, anyway, friends, uh, great to be with you. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you this Sunday. We're talking about the image of God and what that means and why that's good news for us. Okay. So uh, this will be up. As soon as the fast salts internet starts working, uh, this class will be up soonish. Uh, and we'll see you Sunday. God bless and good night, everybody. Peace, y'all. Peace. Peace.